Welcome to Reading Between the Lines, the People's Friends story podcast in association with the Odd Fellows. Each episode, a few of us from the Friend team, along with some special guests, will delve into our archives to find a story to read, and then we'll all sit down for a wee chat about it. Make yourself a cup of tea, pull up a chair, and come join us. This episode, we're reading The Ancestor, A Tale of a Picture Theft, which was first published anonymously in The People's Friend in December 1913. This story is narrated for us by Marion from The Friend Features Team. Over to Marion. dining room of a suburban villa sat a rather unusual figure. The lady was alone and seemed to be making herself very much at home in Mr Lawrence's own particular chair. She was very ample in form and on the top of her greying hair lay a white servant's cap. Mr and Mrs Lawrence had gone away for a Christmas holiday to Brighton to get a whiff of sea air. They had left their trusted cook general in charge of their goods and chattels and their only son, Bertie, a boy of ten. He, however, felt himself quite capable of looking after himself and openly scorned the attempts of Eliza to make him do those things which he ought to do in the absence of his parents. She was resting comfortably now because her charge had gone quietly off to bed without the usual tussle. It was not his bedtime really, but a little while before, while Bertie had run off to the shops for the choice joke paper which he patronised, Eliza had crept quietly from room to room and had quietly pushed on the hands of all the clocks until they indicated an hour later than it actually was. When the dining room clock struck nine, Bertie looked up from his picture paper with a start and a, golly, nine already! Before the pretty chime had died away in the corners of the dim old room, Eliza entered, looking a very model of a respectable British servant in her black dress and spotless cap and apron. She carried Bertie's supper on a tray and fairly beamed motherly kindness at him as she tried to persuade him to leave them their awful pictures and get his supper like a good boy. Come now, Master Bertie, do, she insisted. Let me see you eat your porridge while it's hot and go up them stairs as I promised your ma I'd see you went punctual every night at nine and Lord forgive me, here it is five past already and me only brought in your supper. Eliza never wasted time in taking a breath until she'd said all she wanted to say. You be off, Ly. I'll get my supper right enough and go to bed too, but I don't want you hanging round. But I promised your ma. Get out, I tell you. I'm going right enough when I finish my grub. Well, I'll go, but do be quick, Master Bertie. As Bertie Lawrence shoveled the sugared porridge into his mouth, he was thinking deeply. If Eliza had seen him, she would have been certain he was planning some mischievous plot. He always was when he put on his thinking cap. When she came padding back along the carpeted hall again in her felt slippers, she found that the porridge had disappeared, and so had the young master. This was such unprecedented obedience on his part that she was a bit suspicious. She went upstairs and, standing breathlessly on the top step, listened intently. There was nothing to be heard at all. A master Bertie's door was shut, while a line of light shone from underneath. She padded along and knocked at the door. Are you gone to bed, Master Bertie? She called out, oilily. 
There was a muttering inside. The door was opened with a jerk by a small boy with already ruffled hair and a glare in the youthful eye which reminded Eliza of the master on his worst days. Can't you let a man alone? he demanded. Where else do you suppose I'd go at nine o'clock at night, eh? And with that, the small autocrat slammed the door in a bland face and the key was turned in the lock. The woman beamed more than ever instead of being offended at the snub which her well-meant attempts to do her duty had been met with. She went down to the dining room and began to pile on coal until the fire simply roared up the chimney. Then she took a tablecloth out of a drawer, laid it ready and went out into the kitchen. From when she returned, laden with all the necessaries for a meal. A cold roasted chicken and half a boiled ham forming the staple items. There was some of the master's choicest wine from the cellar and whiskey and brandy close at hand, ready with lemons and sugar to make into punch when the night should be a little older. When she had brought her mistress's best silver spirit kettle and put it with the other things on the sideboard, Eliza sat down in her master's huge chair and gave herself up to a period of blissful anticipation. Presently came the sound that she was waiting for, a heavy step on the gravel beneath the window and then a knock at the kitchen door. Eliza bustled out, opened it and extended a warm but subdued welcome to somebody. A cautious whisper in a man's gruff voice, an assuring answer from Eliza and a resounding noise which sounded very much like a kiss. Presently, Eliza sauntered into the brilliantly lit dining room, looking up into the face of a young man whose arm encircled her somewhere about where her waist used to be. My eye was his first remark. You have got champion spread and no mistake. Fowl, am, jelly, puddin', wine, by the lucky divers, and whiskey and brandy too. Now you're what I call a right sort of sweetheart, you are. And in the deep love which the good things had awakened in his heart, he threw his arm about her and kissed her again. Come on now, will you carve or shall I, Sammy, love? Oh, you'll do best, my pet. Cut a nice bit of ham and chicken for your own Sammy. Eliza did so, and she kept on supplying his plate and her own as they demolished the dainties until the chicken was nothing but a skeleton and the ham a mere bone. By the time Samuel had disposed of a few little items in the sweet line and emptied a bottle or so of wine, he leaned back in his chair and declared himself about full up. Eliza wished to take him into the other rooms to show him her mistress's treasures, but Samuel preferred to make himself comfortable before the blazing fire. His next object was to make the kettle boil. So Eliza contented herself with showing him the beauties of the dining room, which he was able to admire without getting up from the chair in which he'd installed himself. And this picture, Eliza pointed out, is a family heirloom. Very, very valuable, the mistress told me, worth a bucket full of money. It's be painters, it's the fashion to collect his pictures now. Samuel looked up sharply. Oh, she told you that? Yes, she's been trying to get the master to sell it, but he says, no, he says, not for a fortune, he says, kettle's boiling, Sam, now you know how to make a brew of punch, I'll be bound. Do I what? Sam grinned, turning to the little hissing kettle. There was silence while he made the important mixture. A certain drowsy feeling was creeping through Eliza's veins, and Sam was thinking. It was not until he poured his third glassful of the inspiring liquid that the result of his cogitations burst upon his sweetheart's astonished ears. He and she must secure that portrait. 
He knew exactly how to cut it out of the frame so that the picture itself should not be injured in any way. He would slip up to London and sell it immediately, and Eliza must manage to conceal the loss for a bit. He would write to her the moment he'd sold it, and then she could advertise the loss. This was Friday. He would be certain to sell it tomorrow. She would get the letter on Sunday morning, and then she must raise all the row she could about the missing picture. She must run to the neighbours, fetch the police, and summon the Lawrences from Brighton. Then, as a reward for their combined industry and cleverness, there will be a snug little public somewhere in a nice, lively part. She will be a lady for life, with servants to wait on her, and a husband who will be only too pleased to be used as a doormat if a fancy took her that way. Eliza listened to this heavenly forecast with dazed, watery eyes. It all seemed so easy and natural that she agreed readily to all he said. The remains of the feast were pushed to one side, and the precious picture lifted down and turned back upwards on the table, where they both stood staring at it stupidly. We want some tools, Eliza, said Sam. So we do, she agreed thickly, and locked arm in arm for safety, because the walls in the floor had taken a sudden mania for diving, they wandered into the kitchen in search of pincers and a sharp knife. The heavy curtains in front of the dining room window parted. A small head was pushed cautiously out, and a slim figure followed. Bertie Lawrence stood listening intently. He could hear sounds from the kitchen. He knew the tools were not there. He picked up the brandy and whiskey bottles, one in each hand, and, pouring first one, then the other fiery liquid into the glasses, he filled them both nearly up to the brim. When Sam and Eliza came back with the tools, they had to fortify themselves with a little of the something in the glasses before beginning operations. Strange to say, neither felt very well when they started work, and the walls and the floor were behaving more strangely than ever. And how about if I don't hear a Sunday, you mightn't be able to sell that ear all of a minute, love. What should I do then? And the empty frame of staring anyone in the face as happens to come in the room. I have the empty frame. Why? What about the young shaver? You'll see it. He's going footballing tomorrow with his school. I'll put a fire and eat breakfast in the morning room and I'll lock this door so he can get in if he should take it into his head before he sets off. I'd better shout on Sunday morning all the same, Sam. Because if I don't, Master Bertie will be sure to get hopping in and out, and he'll very soon spot the empty frame. Aye, there seems to be nothing else for it then, as far as I can see. Well, we'll have to trust to selling it before word gets to London anyway. On Sunday morning, there was no letter for Liza, and, though considerably alarmed, she did as they'd arranged, and before nine o'clock, the whole neighbourhood knew that a very valuable picture had been stolen from the laurels in the absence of Mr and Mrs Lawrence. The police, for whom Eliza had run, took the affair into their own hands and communicated with the owners, who returned from their hotel at Brighton in a state of distraction. The portrait was one of Mr Lawrence's ancestors, who had made the family famous, and besides the loss of money value, he knew he would have to face an irate bevy of relations. Eliza was in floods of tears when her master and mistress arrived, and the police seemed to be equally helpless. So far as Mr Lawrence could hear, nobody had done anything or found one single clue to the burglars. The superintendent of police had a great deal to say, and so had Eliza, 
but he could get no satisfaction from anybody. The only thing that seemed clear was that the picture had gone. It had been cut clear of its frame and had simply vanished, along with the thief, into thin air. Come and look, sir. I'll show you the very place where the deed was done, as I haven't moved a thing since I put my head in this morning. Because there seemed nothing more sensible to be done, they obeyed her suggestion. The dining room door opened just as they were going in, and a little boy came out. He was kissed very sadly and quietly by his parents. Naturally, the owner's eyes turned to the spot on the wall where his beloved ancestor had been left. He stared in simple amazement, and so did everybody else. Then, slowly, all eyes turned on poor Eliza. Her face had gone the colour of putty. Her mouth hung wide open, while her eyes seemed to be coming out of her head with shock. With a wild shriek, she clung to the policeman's arm. There, hanging in its usual place, was the portrait. Mr Lawrence strode up to it, and lifting it off its hooks, took it to the light and examined it critically. Then he turned wrathful eyes on Eliza. What the deuce do you mean by kicking up this row? he demanded. Oh, sir, it's the work of spirits, that's what it is, sir. As true as I stand here, that picture wasn't there half an hour ago, and these gentlemen would tell you the same. The astonished members of the police force nodded silently. It's spirits right enough, sir, Eliza repeated. Uh, yes, it is, Dad. I poured it into their glasses myself, so I know, piped a thin voice. The bewildered parents turned their eyes sorrowfully on their son. Had he gone mad too? Bertie laughed. It was on Friday night, Dad. I found that Eliza was keen on getting me out of the way for some reason. I found that she had put all the clocks on an hour, so I did a trick on her. I went upstairs, but instead of going to bed, I waited until I heard her go into the kitchen, and then I slipped into the window seat and hid behind the curtain. Shut up, Eliza! Eliza was protesting vehemently against the wickedness and magnitude of the boy's invention. First, she got a regular dinky spread, went on the young detective. And then after a bit, Sam Lovett from the Golden Cock came in and they did themselves well, I can tell you, with father's wine and things. They were soon half squiffy and Eliza began showing Lovett the things in the room. Then when Lovett heard that the ancestor was valuable, he said he must have it. They laid all their plans beautifully and then they went out into the kitchen to get tools to cut him out of his frame. Mother, you know that old picture that hangs in the spare room? It's about the same size as the ancestor, and it's a man's head, the same. Yes, I know it, dear. Well, when they'd gone, they left the ancestor facing downwards on the table. I took it away and came back with a picture out of the spare room and laid it down exactly like they left the ancestor after filling up their glasses with neat whiskey. Of course, neither of them noticed the difference, and they neatly cut the cheap old fellow out while the ancestor calmly reposed on the spare room wall. I say, you fellas, if you've anything more to say to Eliza, you'd better look sharp. And he pointed a slim finger towards the garden gate, through which a stout, print-clad figure could be seen already making into the road. The police looked inquiringly at Mr Lawrence, but he shook his head. Never mind, he said. The picture they've got isn't worth bothering about, as no doubt Mr Samuel Lovett has found out by now. Reading Between the Lines is proud to be sponsored by Friendship Society The Oddfellows. If you've ever wondered what being a member of The Oddfellows means, 
We're delighted to be able to share some first-hand answers. My name is Karen and I'm from East Grinstead. The best thing about being a member of the Odd Fellows is that there's always someone to talk to if you need help and advice, whether it be a member of your local branch or whether it be the Care and Welfare Helpline or the Citizens Advice Price Helpline. You never feel on your own. Hi, I'm Diana from South London. The best part about being an Odd Fellows member is I feel like I have an extended family to talk to and see them almost daily on Zoom. My name is Colin from Blackpool, and the best thing about being a member uh, of the Odd Fellows is that I get to meet uh, a, a broader range of people outside my normal social circle. True friendships provide us with memories that we cherish for a lifetime. They help us to grow and become better people. They help us to make a better society. For over 200 years, the Odd Fellows has helped its members forge friendships and offered help in times of need. So why not give them a call today on 0800 028 1810 for a free information pack or visit oddfellows.co.uk to find your nearest branch. Everyone's welcome. Now, let me top up my tea, grab some of my friends, and we'll have that wee chat about the story you've just heard. That was The Ancestor, A Tale of a Picture Theft, which was first published anonymously in The People's Friend in December 1913. Here to discuss that story with me is our narrator, Marion, from the Features team. Hello, Marion. Hello. And we're also joined by David from the DC Thompson Archives. Hello, David. Hi there. And Lucy, the People's Friend fiction editor. Hello, Lucy. Hello. So, The Ancestor. I, I like this story. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to set my stall out early this episode and tell everyone that I like the story. There are things that perhaps I would have done differently, but we'll get to them as we, as we go on. But the thing that struck me um, right away when you're reading this story is the very unflattering description of the, the servant. It starts in the second sentence of the, the third sentence of the story. She was very ample in form and on top of her graying hair. You're, you're, get, you're already getting a, a, an impression of this woman, um, which I think only gets worse as the story goes on. Am I? Did I jump the gun, or is that the case? I don't know because I think with the next paragraph along, we get the impression that she is a somebody who is very trusted by the family, and who is a, a good person. Indeed, and actually, as as the story progresses, kind of sentence by sentence, she does appear to be very put upon as well by. Master Bertie. Indeed. She's also a gen a cook general, which basically means you've got one servant in the house that does everything mm. as I understand it. And for a, a family that seemed quite so affluent to only have one servant felt a bit you know, that I, I don't know, I was expecting there at least to be maybe at least one other or two other people, two other servants knocking around. Mm-hmm. But um that wouldn't work for the narrative, obviously. <laughs> They're getting the money's worth, especially that they've left young Bertie in her charge 
for however long. Do we think that she's prematurely greying in that case? Do you think she's been horribly so. by her job? I think it's been <laughs> I think making the acquaintance of Bertie definitely. I, I, as soon as I started reading that, I had visions of the housekeeper from uh, Mary Poppins in my head. Yes. And that's what I had in my head all the way through the story. Yep. But I think that's just because I watched it the other week. Oh. <laughs> like, <laughs> I was getting um, not not at all a, a reference to your narration, Marion, but I was getting Mrs. Potts from Beauty and the Beast, Angela Lansbury. Okay. The voice, certainly. Uh, the, it's because it's the we've spoken about it when we've done stories on the podcast in the past, the kind of Cockney dialect uh-huh. that seems to be the the go-to in people's friends stories for those of a lower class they all speak a bit like they were chimney sweeps in a previous <laughs> life yeah i apologize for the dick van dyke <laughs> yeah. go on i dare you to go to angela lansbury and ask her if where if you know what is it somewhere about where her waist used to be <laughs> yeah exactly we're That's gonna get sued worse. by disney we're gonna get sued by disney <laughs> i bet angela lansbury's got great lawyers I wonder where you were going to say it there. That sentence. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, that's for that's for our other podcast. <laughs> I think the thing that got me from about this is that that the parents are away on a Christmas holiday to Brighton, and they've left the child behind. <laughs> and while this isn't Christmas, that is the only reference to Christmas in the whole story. And that got me wondering because this was published on the twenty second of December, nineteen thirteen. So I went and had a look at the hard copy. And all of the rest of the stories in that issue is very much this is the Christmas number. Uh-huh. And everything is kind of like Christmassy and, you know, hammering home the season. And this one feels like this is a really good story that's been sat in a drawer somewhere. Mm-hmm. How can we make it fit? <laughs> oh, if we change it into a Christmas holiday rather than the summer holiday or the autumn break or something like that, then we can use it. <laughs> and it's still Christmas. I have to say that was the first thing that struck me about this. It's just so completely lacking in any sort of festivity or any <laughs> seasonal feeling at all. It's it's an unusual choice for a Christmas issue. There's no doubt about that. It's very odd, isn't it? All the food that Eliza does bring to the table. You think, why have these people gone away and left all this food behind? Because a small 10-year-old child and a one servant is not going to get through a banquet like that, even at Christmas. And it all seems to be cold meats and everything. Mm. Does Eliza not cook for him while she's there? <laughs> it, it was odd. It was odd. And it was it was made to seem like she was stealing from the, the couple in eating like, all this yeah, food. Well, the cat's away, the mice will play kind of thing. Yeah. yeah. But they're away. It would have gone off. Unless she's gone into the larder and taken the the bits that she wanted to use while they're not there to question it because you know she's the only servant there's no one there to say oh look she's helping herself to a ham potentially i know that doesn't apply with the alcohol obviously yeah <laughs> don't drink someone's alcohol if you're left in their house it's just rude <laughs> and don't entertain strangers in the house either no that was very naughty i can certainly see why she was messing with the clocks to get Bertie out of her hair because oh, you would, wouldn't you? He's just a monster. I can also see why his parents left him behind for their Christmas <laughs> holiday to Brighton. They're like, "Look, we're on holiday. We don't need you." <laughs> when I read this story first and sort of read the first page, I think I thought, "Oh, great, we're going to get some sort of William Richmond Compton mm. character here." And you don't have to read very far before you think, "No, we really haven't." <laughs> <laughs> This is sort of symptomatic of some of the, or it's uh, 
like some of the stories that we've had on the podcast in the past, we've discussed the way that children were portrayed in these stories. And it seems to me that rather than being portrayed like children, they are tiny Victorian gentlemen. Well, she puts it straight in one of the sentences. The small autocrat slammed the door in a bland face. That's <laughs> all you need to know. We all know that child as well, I'm sure. <laughs> oh, totally. Um, hey, I think it's that thing where they use the child as kind of like the, the not the moral compass, but as a, an, an innocent way of putting forward the story or putting forward the moral. Mm -hmm. So he's the one that ultimately that pulls pulls it up and, you know, she's done wrong. That's what's happened. And um, I sorted it all out. Aren't I great? I found, I know that, that what you're saying makes perfect sense. Mm -hmm. And that's definitely what's happening. And by the end of the story, I found myself thinking, I hope that that child slips on a banana skin. <laughs> I just... <laughs> Like I'm, I'm not necessarily rooting for foiled thieves, um, but I'm also not necessarily rooting for the child. I think the problem with the story is that you're not really rooting for anyone. Mm -hmm. I, I don't think you feel a feeling of warmth or or interest, particularly towards any of the characters. I mean, immediately you you realise that these are parents who've gone off and left their child <laughs> on Christmas holidays, so they they are sort of ticked off the list. Bertie is so annoying. I mean. He is every worst aspect of a ten-year-old <laughs> boy. Um, Eliza, I mean, obviously you do. There's definitely are some feelings of of sympathy, you know, solicited there. You do get the feeling that she's very put upon and that she is trying her best for Bertie because she does appear to be all he has at this point. <laughs> um, but then, you know, further down the the story you think, well, no, actually, that's not really how you should be behaving in this situation. And it was just difficult to to feel anything for any of them. I, I didn't find this story particularly attractive in any way. I don't think the parents even like the kid. I mean, it's one thing that they left him behind, but it's another thing when they come back after the theft, he's almost like an afterthought. They, they don't search out their son. They're kind of like, they're talking to the constable. They're talking to the, they're talking to Eliza to find, Eliza to find out what happened and everything. And then the, the child just wanders in a little bit later off, like some sort of mini Poirot and solves <laughs> yes. it in three seconds. <laughs> no, I've got you all in the drawing room. I'll tell you how it all happened. <laughs> You've just got me so wondering as well, without needing to be sued by Disney again, is this not home alone, but with one extra person in the house? <laughs> I mean, effectively, with the, without sprinkling Christmas decorations under a window, that's basically the only thing that's missing. Ah, oh, but they left him deliberately as well. <laughs> <laughs> Wouldn't Which you? is completely understandable, as we've just discussed. <laughs> well, it's the other thing that got me thinking about whether this is a, a story that they've had on hold to use at an appropriate time. Because this could go out, you could, as I mentioned, you could change Christmas to autumn to whatever. But also, I get the impression this is the kind of boy that would probably be packed off to private school. He'd be at a boarding school somewhere. Yeah. You know, so he wouldn't be home. But um, his vocabulary is not that of a 10-year-old. Certainly not. I can't imagine even Victorian 10-year-olds talking like this. Not an average 10-year-old anyway. No, not unless he happens to be the love child of Jacob Rees-Mogg and, <laughs> uh, what's his name, um, Russell Brandt, <laughs> which is a very weird, can't match up with uh, head. <laughs> you know. I knew there was a reason I didn't like this kid and you've just hit it on the head. <laughs> Going back to slightly over, where, where the language doesn't meet the character, we had this in some of the previous stories, do you remember? I think it was the, the Wild West 
story that we did of, uh, in the previous series of the the podcast. Yes, where um, it was an American gangster story or something like that, and the boy, the man on his honeymoon was kidnapped. That's right, by someone who was like so verbose and eloquent that you you kind of had to read each of his sentences three times to understand what he was saying. That was that's the very first story that we um, that we did in the podcast. Mm. Uh, oh, what was it called? Yeah, it was like an American an American adventure or an American gangster story yeah. or something like that. And there was nothing American about it except for, I think, a, a, a token mention of dollars or something like that. It could have been set in Ipswich. You know, it was like... Yeah, there, there was a, a section of dialogue where the, the robber um, is holding like a gun to the guy's head and he describes in about 3,000 words why the guy should be worried that he's got a gun to his head. <laughs> yeah, I think poor Alex had to read that one. He had one <laughs> yes, he of a job. <laughs> anyway, I digress. I wonder, um, I just, as we're, as we're piling onto this kid, I wonder if they previously had more servants and he just drove the rest of them away. That is a definitely distinct possibility. <laughs> yeah. I felt a bit really sorry for Eliza because, as we've said, She's so put upon, but there was something I didn't didn't quite enjoy about her being portrayed so quickly as automatically dishonest. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, I th- I felt she was a little bit manipulated mm. by her her boyfriend, for want of a better word, when he came around. But also, when I first when I first read it. And I read the first page. I thought, "Ooh, this is going to be some sort of battle of wits between Bertie yes. and her, because both of them are flawed characters. Both of them are obviously looking for an easy time yeah. on their own terms." And so I thought, "Ooh, is this where the story's going to go?" And it turned into the theft. Um, so I thought maybe that, that that's a story for another day. But I felt that a battle of wits could have actually been quite interesting between these two. That's where I thought it was going to go as well. And I think our version would have been a better story. <laughs> <laughs> I thought when when she was going around changing the clocks, I thought that it would turn into something like that. Like, as you're saying, like he would go around and, and mess with stuff in the kitchen. Yeah. Or, and they would be fighting one another for the story i felt that there was there was definitely a promise of humor initially but it was as though this story didn't know where it was going to go it wasn't one thing or the other really and likewise with the characters it just didn't sit comfortably i didn't think and as a reader i'm not sure if i was meant to find bertie's machinations funny or not Mm -hmm. or or was i meant to think he was clever in in outwitting the thieves or I just didn't know how to respond to that aspect of the story. Every single time I start a podcast episode with I like the story, it just, <laughs> it just gets a complete kick in. In terms of what, what you said, Marion, about Eliza being manipulated, mm-hmm. uh, there's a line in here that really stood out to me when she she kind of lays on all this food that she's bumped from her employers. Uh, and then she goes and answers the door and he comes in and has a look at all the stuff that she's put out and the line is and in the deep love which the good things had awakened in his heart he threw his arm about her yes so that (laughs) i mean how distressingly slippery does that sound it's the poor eliza it's not the woman (laughs) He, he doesn't seem to care that much he's looking at the stuff and thinking oh that's that makes me feel quite good yeah Yeah. i wasn't massively surprised when she never got a message from him no No. that plan also sounded very ropey didn't you know you just thought it's like oh there's no way he's off if there's any money to be taken there's no way you're going to see him again 
because he's kind of promising all the things that she'll have servants and all that kind of stuff. But it's just like, no, nah. it's like, not unless it's a Gainsborough, you know, <laughs> <laughs> you know in, which, in which case you haven't got a hope. Like, it, it was, it did raise my suspicions. He was, um, you stay here and I'll take the <laughs> portrait to London and you wait for me to send you a letter before you come looking for me. Yeah. Is, is very suspicious. Maybe it was meant to be a cautionary tale. Maybe. Wouldn't surprise me. Also, post on a Sunday. That's, I know that, that that was a thing. It used to be a thing. Yeah. Back in the day. It used to be more than one post a day oh. as well. Imagine. I'm sorry, I can't. <laughs> the second post was a real thing. It normally came just after lunch. Yeah. I've heard. <laughs> We're giving our ages away here, Lucy. The luxury. <laughs> I remember that. <laughs> and now it's just marketing emails every 10 minutes. It's like... <laughs> so I was impressed that his plan, that Bertie's plan, was that if he got them completely gaga on all the booze, he could get away with swapping the the portraits. And again, that sounded like it, it could have been expanded upon and been very funny, but it kind of, it was, for want of a better phrase, glazed over. Mm. I didn't feel it needed, I didn't feel it needed to be in the wrap-up. I think it would have been better if that had been hinted at earlier in the story. Mm-hmm. Mm. Um, so that you as the reader knew I mean it, it gave a surprise but it just all felt a bit like one of those stories where oh hold on I've done my however hun- many hundred words I need to do I've only got so many left I need to get this wrapped up so we'll just put it all into the voice of one character I think actually is, does it not say earlier on when he, he emerges from the the curtain where he's been hiding mm-hmm. it says that he, he tops up their glasses Presumably they're pint yeah. glasses if they got drunk that quickly. <laughs> well, he did fill them nearly to the brim. But they had had a bottle of they had had a bottle of wine as well already. At least you know at least one. Because I thought it's like he's putting away a lot of booze. This kind of the, the boyfriend. What's his name again? Sorry. Sam. Sam. Sam, isn't it? You know he he drank at least one bottle or two. I think they mentioned. Mm. Yeah, and then they've gone onto the hard liquor <laughs> and the punch. I'm taking this far too seriously, but I I do not know how this small ten year old boy managed to get this picture, this heavy picture, up the stairs, get the other heavy picture down the stairs, back onto the table in the same position and not be discovered on the way. I don't no. know if you've ever had, if you've ever tried to hang a picture when you've got a time constraint, <laughs> when you haven't, it's hard enough. And not a four foot long portrait either. I know. I did like the the descriptions though of them as they got more and more drunk about the the um, because the walls and the floor had taken a sudden mania <laughs> yeah. for diving. That, that or was the floors were behaving more strangely than ever. <laughs> I just thought yes, that's <laughs> quite fun. We've all been there. Like, <laughs> <laughs> I'm there right now. I mean, they they were. I mean, they were fairly going at it because the line is: he picked up the brandy and whiskey bottles, one in each hand, and pouring first one, then the other, fiery liquid into the glasses, filled them both up to the brim. So, I think if you were drinking a mix of brandy and whiskey in the one glass, you would probably go gaga pretty quickly. I wonder what Sam's cutting of the canvas looked like after all. (laughs) I did wonder that too. You wouldn't put anybody in charge of a sharp tool with all that alcohol in there, would you? I'm also wondering whether Bertie's got a career as a bartender. (laughs) And where does he work? Cocktail. (laughs) It just all seemed so implausible, I thought, I'm afraid. It just, sorry. Oh, you're all so cynical. (laughs) I didn't think any of it hung together. And also there's a thing that we 
discuss when we're talking about people's friend fiction about something being told and not shown. And I think this was just the epitome of that. You know, it was, as you say, David, it was as if they realised they only had a certain amount of words left and they thought, oh no, I must explain exactly what happened. Um, it just didn't work for me. I wondered whether, I, I wonder what, who this story was aimed at. Mm. Um, and Very I wondered much. whether it's, yeah, it, it doesn't hang together, but there's enough fun in it that a, a parent reading it to their child, for example, at the time, you know, the, the child would have seen the fun in it and they would have enjoyed it. So I wondered whether it was a, a very family-friendly piece mm-hmm. and a bit of filler fluff at the end of the year. I mean, it's anonymous, so I suspect it's a staff author that's written this and it's been sat in a drawer for a while, waiting for the time when it comes out and they needed some filler for the Christmas episode or a story didn't come through from a writer or something and therefore they had to pull something out of the bag. Um, when, As I say, when the rest of the, episode, when the, rest of the um, issue is so Christmassy, and festive. Yeah, it just doesn't seem to fit in at all. No. Which is why I wonder whether it's it's a, it's a family piece as opposed to, you know, aimed at the kids because they could yeah, they, it, they could empathize with Bert, Bertie in some way. Yeah, maybe intended to be read to children or enjoyed with children or as part of a family. I think I'm going to have to get better at searching out stories. Now, Ian, your story your your stories the find the stories you find are always great. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, don't butter me up now, it's too late. Um I did think actually when we were talking about possible in my head, there were there are scenes that if it had been a, a comedic story, like you were saying there, um, how did a 10-year-old get the portrait off the wall and up the stairs and replace it mm-hmm. with something else and bring it back again? That could have been very funny if you were following how he was doing that, like dragging this portrait Absolutely. up the stairs. And the idea occurred to me there that if... Um, they come back and he comes out and uh, his parents come back and he comes out and says, I foiled the robbery. Look, I took the really expensive one and I put it over here and he's absolutely wrecked. And he's trying to like, <laughs> haul it up the stairs and stuff. I think that would be that really would funny. Be great. I, was, I, was, uh, I was also expecting like some sort of diversion for where he's, he creates a diversion or something like that. So when they go off yeah. into the kitchen to find the pliers and the, 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 the tools mm-hmm. that, you know, they're holding on to each other because they're both, you know, three sheets to the wind. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, and it's just like, you know, there should be another diversion that keeps them out because, you know, as you say, he moved a lot in a very short amount of time. <laughs> he did. And uh, and knowing that the tools weren't there, I mean, he still didn't know how long that was going to give him. Jacob Rees-Mogg was tall even as a child. I think. <laughs> <laughs> but Nanny would never have allowed this. Um, <laughs> Nanny would never have filled stall up food from the parlour. It got me because the other thing that got me is quite comic is the way that um, Eliza makes a dash for it at the end. Mm. <laughs> yes. like it's just like, and they kind of let her just say, well, you know, no one's hurt in the great scheme of things. The robbers aren't any better off. They've probably learned their lesson, so we'll let her away with it. But I did have, I could almost kind of like see the zoom marks yes. behind her as she's running out the door. Or like one of those kind of like um, roadrunner type of moments where he's running on the spot, hasn't quite got the momentum <laughs> oh. to rush off. But damn, I've been caught. That made me laugh as well, thinking of the parents and Bertie being left without anybody to do for them at Christmas. <gasps> and the food all eaten. <laughs> dun, dun, dun. <laughs> they're, all, they're going back to Brighton. They're leaving Bertie on his own. <laughs> Bertie sounds more than capable of running that household by himself. I think the bar was dry, also, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> judging by the sounds of things. <laughs> I thought that the the escape was quite funny. I thought, given the the previous descriptions of Eliza, which, as we talked about, weren't exactly terribly um, nice, uh, and then the line is, 
he pointed a he pointed a slim finger towards the garden gate through which a stout print clad figure could be seen already making for the road. <laughs> it was quite a funny, like the world's slowest getaway, <laughs> as they're kind of watching her go down a, a yeah. mile long driveway. Like, yeah. nah, it's okay. There's definitely humour in this story. I mean, there's humour oh, interspersed there throughout the story, but I think just as a story as a whole, it just doesn't seem to hang together for me at all. I don't know what. The writer was trying to achieve. Sorry, Ian. <laughs> <laughs> it's all right. The writer wasn't me. I'm, I'm very young. <laughs> I, I, that, there are so many bits of it that are quite funny and enjoyable, but it just feels like such a missed opportunity because, as David says, it, there are so many different directions this could have gone in and been more entertaining and more festive and more enjoyable for the reader. So, given that shooing we've just given the story um oh. i uh here's a question we've talked of we've, we've mentioned a little bit as we've been speaking but lucy probably in particular as fiction editor if someone submitted this story to you today what would be your advice my advice would be a rewrite um because i think there's so much there that is full of possibility but it just doesn't gel very coherently for me but there is a lot of humour there I mean the characters, you don't have to love characters but they do need to be memorable they do need to be engaging mm -hmm. and there's a lot at the moment that I think could change so I would say yes it's got potential but I wouldn't take it as it is at the moment because there's just too many avenues it could have gone down and would have been more successful if it had gone down in my opinion um, which it didn't also, just the whole lack of festivity. <laughs> you just can't get past that initial, ah, Christmas story with no cheer. We've all had Christmases like that. That's not even a, that's not even a Christmas tree. It's like, you know. So the top of your list of advice would be, what are you trying to do with this story? Who's, who's it aimed at? Is it funny or is it not funny? Yeah, and I think there's there's a lot to be said that could you, there's a lot to work on with the characters, with the character of Eliza. Do we feel sorry for her or do we feel empathy towards her or don't we? Because I think initially we do and then it sort of flip-flops throughout. Um, in terms of it being a cautionary tale and very much of the time, you know, there's a lot there to recommend it for sure. Like don't trust your servants <laughs> or your children. <laughs> <laughs> in terms of how children are viewed, obviously things are so completely different. And as as we've discussed in, in other podcasts, the fact is that we're reading it, you know, well over a hundred years after the the intended um audience would have read it. Um but yeah, at the at this moment I I would say I think it needs some more work. I think we can keep working on this is how I, I would like to do <laughs> Yeah, it's definitely got loads of potential. There's a lot of humour there. Um, and the character of Bertie has so much potential also, but it's not really realised and you end up just being annoyed by him. <laughs> That's so true. That was one of the other things that bothered me about the story. And, and as you guys have already said, who is it for? Because at that time, so many of our readers would have been in service. Exactly. Would they not have found this idea offensive? Mm. That as soon as the, the couple's back was turned, the servant would all automatically kind of go into cheat mode mm. 
And it wasn't just a little bit of cheap mode. I mean, the whole shebang was out there, wasn't there? There was chicken, ham, there was an assortment of drinks. <laughs> Everything was pulled out of the cupboard. <laughs> yeah. I don't think this meets the know your reader criteria at all. No, I think it meets the criteria of um, an ad has been pulled or, as you suggested, David, <laughs> p- possibly another story has not come through and we have to write something quickly. <laughs> well, I, th- I, I suspect that this was sat in the drawer already. Mm. And it's been hanging around for a while and thought, oh, that will do. Which we never do in the modern people's friend. <laughs> never. Oh, that was a, that was a pregnant silence. <laughs> <laughs> I do, yeah, the other thing is because it's anonymous, I, I, I'm becoming more and more of the opinion that anonymous stories are written in-house mm. as either training for staff or um, pieces that people don't feel that they need to put their name against. Yeah, because the actual writing's fine. Yeah, the, the 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 quality of the writing's fine. Yeah, as you say, it's just the, the the story's got holes in it. So whether it's an office junior or something like that, or one of them's just having an off day, or it could even be the editor, so therefore nobody dare pull him aside and say that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Or it could be, oh my goodness, this story won't do at all. We need something in the next couple of hours. But you'd have made it more Christmassy. Yeah. If you knew it was a Christmas number, which is what makes me think it's been lying around for longer. Mm. Because there is nothing. I mean, he's going footballing the next day, which I think was one of the lines that got mm-hmm. me. So I thought, oh, oh yeah. okay, right. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, this could be any time of year. So let that be a lesson to you if you're considering writing Christmas stories for the people's friend. Just saying it's Christmas at the start is not <laughs> enough. <laughs> Do they know it's that. Christmas? <laughs> <laughs> Please make it festive <laughs> in some way. Yeah, but in its historical context in the people's friend, I mean, it is very much, you know, there's, a, there's quite a clear moral element to this about you know crime will not go and you know not go undetected and it will be found out and how you deal how they deal with that is the surprise for me here in the fact that they let them kind of get away with it yeah they're not taking anything they're not value, really punished are but they? they're still there's no punishment but there's a definite moral thing of like you could be outsmarted by a 10 year old and don't undertake crimes when you're drunk <laughs> Um, it's good life advice. Let that be a lesson to us all. <laughs> or, even, or even it could be a temperance piece, couldn't it? You Don't know? drink at all. Because the only yeah. reason they got into this at all was because they were drunk. That's true. There's no indication that they intended to rob the joint other than eating all the food until they start drinking. It's kind of hinted at, isn't it? Because she wants to take him around the house and show um, show him like the, the mistress's trinkets and valuable pieces. And he's not interested because at that point he's had a bottle of wine and he's sat by the fire and he's quite comfy. But if he really was a as light fingered as is suggested, that would have been a far better thing to go and take than a picture. <laughs> <laughs> yes, Things that could be easily. So I am not. A, I, I am not a criminal. Okay, I just want to put that out there. <laughs> I have no history of breaking or entering. Or <laughs> but if you did, you'd take the small. But if I did, I'd take a small thing. <laughs> I thought one of the most controversial things that comes up in this story is he's eating porridge with sugar. Oh, oh that just shows he's not, he's not, he's English, obviously not Scottish. That's, <laughs> uh, I picked up on that as well. I underlined it in my mm. notes and said, ooh, English. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they're, they're obviously within quite, quite close to Brighton, aren't they? Yeah, because the they get, get back, back quite quickly. quickly. Yeah. I also thought porridge for tea or porridge for supper. I don't know. Porridge don't know. for supper. I wasn't sure. In that kind of household, you'd think somebody like Bertie would have had objections. Well, you know, you'd be expecting kind of cheese board and sherry, presumably. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> sherry was all gone. <laughs> sorry, port. Bad port. Luck. Social faux pas. Oh, my God. Port with cheese, obviously. Yes, obviously. <laughs> I like my traditional port in the evening, board, please, I'm mother. sure that 
Yeah, Bertie would have pulled me up if I'd brought that up as the footman. (laughs) (laughs) I'm almost worried to move on to the bit of the podcast where we talk about the ratings, so I'm going to stall you a little bit further and discuss the word oilily because you have a problem with oilily i have a your pronunciation is impeccable why are you calling ian lily <laughs> oh, <Ian> Lily. Lily. <laughs> i had to look it up because i didn't i didn't get the uh, what it meant in terms you of, haven't read enough molesworth perhaps not is that a, a massive it's, people are always being called oily ticks in molesworth dearie me uh <laughs> It's it's not a word I've ever come across. Have you not ever kind of dealt with oily people? You know, the kind of people that make you feel you want to kind of wash after you've met them. You know, they've been a bit slimy and... Those you know. of an oleaginous manner. <laughs> oh, get you. <laughs> is this word of the week? <laughs> it is now. <laughs> um, so the the definition of oil, oily that I found um, by searching several online dictionaries rather than the one copy of the Collins dictionary that we used to keep in the office um, is excessively suave or ingratiating which makes perfectly perfect sense from what you're speaking about, about it being kind of slimy and I think slimy is the one that I would probably go with in my head because I think oilily is incredibly difficult to pronounce. I have to literally... I have to move my whole speaking apparatus in order to get that word out. Like I have to stretch my neck out and chip over your own tongue. Yeah, (laughs) it's not a word I would have picked. That's what I'm saying. I think it definitely put me in mind of Mr. Slope from Barchester Towers, Mm. the Anthony Trollope novel. Um, I would imagine that that would be a word that you may well associate with him. Or Uriah Heep, if we're going back Mm. to Dickens references. Indeed. In David Copperfield. Yeah, Yeah, I think ingratiating is exactly the term. Which is also easier to say. (laughs) (laughs) It's probably then another example of how poorly treated Eliza is in this story because Mm. it's it's her that's described, or it's a, a sentence from her that's described that way. And literally all she's doing is checking if Bertie's in bed, mm. um, which it, then it seems a little bit harsh to call her ingra- like she's ingratiating herself to that little terror. But she's also got to set the scene for her own um, misdemeanors that are about to come up. So she wants to keep him sweet and, like, uh, and that she's not angry with him. So he's not going to come and disturb so he's, her. He's not going to come down. He has to stay up yeah. there. Although then he becomes autocratic just after that. (laughs) I think in terms of people's friend fiction that we have now, we always try to, you know, be on side with characters and not laugh at them, sort of laugh with them. And I think in this story, it just didn't sit with me. I I felt that it didn't sit well with me. I, I felt we were laughing at her a little bit. As we've said, you know, many friend readers would have been in service and, I just it didn't sit comfortably with me. I thought they were they were laughing at her a little bit, and of, also being a lady of a certain age and um, physical stature hurt some of the descriptions <laughs> of her. Rang a little bit too true, and I think that they they were sort of laughing at her, um, not in a typically people's friend way. So maybe maybe I've just got a sense of humour failure on this story. But it, it, it's just you're right, Lucy. I think you've put your finger on one of the things that was making me uncomfortable about it. It's 
it lacks that people's friend's sense of kindness. Exactly. I do think so. I think, you know, you can you could have handled her character so differently um, without sniggering at her. Again, I, I did think about this quite a lot because I thought maybe it's me. <laughs> you know, maybe I just don't have that sense of humour or maybe I need to lighten up, which both of these things may be true. Um, but in in terms of the story, yeah, it didn't it didn't feel very pleasant towards her. That would be my only point. I can't wait till we get to the ratings. Oh, this is going to be <laughs> this is going to be a belter. If this one wins, the in the end, I'll be very very surprised. Um, in fact, let's beat about the bush no more. Um, we are now coming to the part of the podcast where we assign ratings to the stories. Uh, the idea behind it, as you'll know if you've listened to a couple of our episodes this season, is that the the story that attracts the highest rating from the podcast guests and also from listeners uh, on our social media channels or via um, reviews wherever you get your podcasts, the winning story will be published in the magazine. I'm going to go out on a limb and say that this is not going to be the winning story. But then again, the power is in your hands, reading between the lines, listeners. Even if this story gets a very low score from our guests here, you can absolutely champion this all the way to getting published next uh, next summer, certainly after the, the end of the season, um, should you so wish. Uh, it would be interesting for me to then record a follow-up episode with everybody here uh, <laughs> looking at it in the magazine. Um, but let's do it. Let's let's give it a rating. Um, David, we'll start with you. What do you oh. think? On the grounds that under the sale of goods, I don't know, the Trade Descriptions Act, it's not a Christmas story. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, as one element of this. And the, the fact... Yeah, it, it it doesn't live up to its potential. I think I'm going to have to be really harsh on this one and give it a four. It's a shame because there's bits of it I really like and there's some really nice writing in it and some really nice descriptions. But as a story, it just doesn't hold together for me and it's all just a bit convenient. And the lack of Christmas decorations. Yeah, I mean, all it needed was one Christmas tree and it would have been a 10. <laughs> Not. That is, that is a magic Christmas tree. <laughs> Um, Marion, what do you think? Oh, there was, as David said, it doesn't hang together as a story all that well. But the writing is really nice. You know, the actual way it's written, and there are some funny bits in it. Can't really forgive the unkindness to Eliza. <laughs> Bertie, an interesting character, as Lucy says, has much potential, didn't live up to it. Um, but I think the main thing is because it made me try and convey somebody who was drunk, <laughs> which, believe it or not, was not something I found very easy to do. <laughs> so for me, it's going to be uh, four and a half. Four and a half. Okay. Lucy, what do you think? I'm going to say four. I think it didn't sit well on a number of levels there was a lot of humour there there was a lot of nice writing but it's what it could have been rather than what it is and I also didn't like that it was very unsympathetic towards Eliza it did sort of laugh at her and that basic friend feeling of kindness wasn't there um, 
I just can't get past the fact that it's not <laughs> in any way. <laughs> it's not festive and it's not feel good. And it also leaves you feeling it's it's how you want your reader to be to leave the story, I think. It didn't have a satisfactory feeling at the end. It was too rushed together at the end. It was as if, as we've said, um, they thought, oh no, I've only got 100 words. I must quickly explain everything. But I mean, again, in terms of of the time, um, in terms of it being a cautionary tale, there's a lot to recommend it. But I think it could have been so much better than it was. And for that reason, I'm going to say four. Apparently, I like to leave stories unsatisfied. <laughs> What are you going to give it? I I abstain from these things because I am a neutral observer. But if I was going to give it a score, that's what I'm getting at. <laughs> if, if my if I were involved in the scoring process, I don't disagree with anything that anybody said. I did find bits of it quite funny. Bearing in mind the scores we've given other things, I would probably give it a five and a half. Oh, quite high. That's, uh, I suppose that is that's probably not as high as I would have given it had we not just had a 30-minute conversation about all the bits of it that don't work. Uh, I think maybe, did I, did I read it too fast the first time round? Maybe I did. <laughs> we'll never know. <laughs> but I think that's the perfect time to end this episode as I slink off and <laughs> consider my position here at The People's Friend. <laughs> So it just remains for me to say thank you to Marion for narrating the story and very ably narrating drunk people. <laughs> thank you so much. <laughs> and also to David and Lucy for joining us for the discussion. And until this wee group of friends gets together again for another story, from the friend to you, cheerio. Thanks again for joining us for this episode of Reading Between the Lines. Subscribe in your podcast app today so you don't miss our next story and check our previous episodes for more from the Friend Archives. We would be delighted if you were to recommend this podcast to your friends. If you don't already get The People's Friend, because you listen to Reading Between the Lines, you can now get your first 13 issues for just £6, and that special offer is available until May 31st, 2022. Check the episode notes for details and terms. And for more from The People's Friend, visit thepeoplesfriend.co.uk or find us on Facebook and Twitter. Haste you back. There's a dainty little journal that is read both far and near. It has had a host of rivals, still it stands without a peer. It is bright and entertaining from the first page to the end and is known to its admirers as the dear old people's friend. A charming little journal is the friend. Of good things it is such a happy blend That to read it at your leisure is a pleasure without measure The friend to friends in trouble recommend They won't be happy till they get the friend <laughs>